All around us in the world in which we live is suffering and grief. We've heard about some of the suffering from Fanen, what's going on in Joss today, but we see it all kinds of different ways. Just this week, my elderly aunt uh, fell and broke her hip. She broke her other hip in a fall just before Christmas. To make things worse, she's going blind and struggling to come to terms with it. My friend Dave suffered two disastrous marriages. He was falsely accused of violence against one of them, was suspended from his job, eventually forced to take early retirement. He struggles to make ends meet. An Assyrian pastor arrested in February, accused of converting Muslims, is currently being tortured in prison and threatened with execution. Just a few years back, a young teenager at Charwell School in North Oxford was cycling along the Thames path when something happened. He ended up in the river and he was drowned. Life can sometimes be brutal and desperately unfair. We suffer unjustly at the hands of others, sometimes intentionally, sometimes carelessly. We can suffer simply because of unfortunate choices that we ourselves make. Sickness strikes indiscriminately, without warning, and death is still the great enemy that we rail against. Poet Dylan Thomas expressed his anger at the death of his father with these lines, Do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Still the subject that few want to discuss. Death is often viewed by the medical profession as the ultimate failure. With no hope for anything beyond the grave, our society demands that doctors extend life at all costs. And it's no wonder the NHS bill continues to escalate. The resurrection of Jesus Christ shows us that mortality, frailty and death are not God's final plan for humanity. It shows us something far, far better. Something which will sustain us even through all those trials, the persecution, the sickness, the death. It was sometime during the autumn of 1984, I sat by a hospital bed in the Royal Marsden Hospital in South London visiting my sister Fiona, aged 20. She was a bright, attractive girl full of the joys of life until a few weeks earlier she'd been pursuing her lifelong desire to become a vet. Good A-level results had taken her to Bristol where she was in the second year of a degree studying veterinary medicine. She had a great bunch of friends. She was enjoyed by all her family. Having had major health issues as a baby, it was a particular joy to see her doing well in life. That was until she was diagnosed with leukaemia. As I sat by her bed, I was very aware that my little sister, just setting out on her adult life, might only have a few months to live. But Fiona didn't seem concerned. She had a sparkle in her eyes, and she asked me to read to her from Psalm 16, 
It's actually a little bit of the speech, Peter's speech that Duncan didn't read for us, but it's there in verses 25 and following of Acts chapter 2, quotation from Psalm 16. And this is what I read to Fiona on that day. I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices, my body also will live in hope, because you will not abandon me to the grave nor will you let your Holy Ones see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. During the weeks of her illness, Fiona had been gripped by these verses and given great assurance that should she die, she would not be abandoned to the grave. And that now in the present, though bedridden, She had discovered joy in the presence of Jesus. Her heart was glad as she rejoiced in the hope of resurrection. And this morning as we look at these verses together, I hope to show you some good reasons for having that same resurrection hope. The hope that sustained Fiona through those last few months of her life. The hope that sustains those Christians in Joss as they suffer persecution at the hands of Muslims. I've got four main points about the resurrection and the hope it brings, but before I get onto them, let me quickly address the question, how can I know the resurrection is true? I'm not going to give you detailed answers this morning, but the text we've had read to us gives us three hints. Firstly, the empty tomb. Uh, When Peter points out in verse 29 to the fact that David's tomb is right there in Jerusalem, he's basically saying, come on guys, if you want to find David's body, it's over there, stuck in that mausoleum. But if you want to find Jesus' body, well you know where his tomb is, but it's empty. The empty tomb has never been given an adequate explanation other than the resurrection of Jesus. Secondly, in verse 32, he declares that the twelve disciples are eyewitnesses of the fact. We saw him, they said. We touched him. He was alive and well. And then the Apostle Paul, later in 1 Corinthians 15, talks about actually 500 people saw Jesus all at the same time, alive and well. Thirdly, there was the transformation of the disciples. If you turn back just a couple of pages to John chapter 20 and a little section that comes just after the bit that uh, was read to us earlier by Susie. Uh, Verse uh, verse 19 of chapter 20. On the evening of that first day of the week when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews... Jesus came and stood among them. Doors locked for fear of the Jews. The disciples, Jesus had just been crucified. They were his friends, they were his followers. They were in fear for their own lives, lest something should happen to them. But just a few weeks later, here is Peter, along with the twelve, standing up in a public place in front of all the Jewish religious leaders who'd had Jesus put to death, boldly declaring, you lot are responsible 
from fear to fearlessness. How else do you explain a transformation in these men other than that they had truly seen the risen Christ? So there's three uh, little pointers as to why we should believe the resurrection. But my first main point this morning uh, about uh, the resurrection and the hope it brings is this. Human wickedness and failure do not hinder God's good purposes. Who handed Jesus over to be crucified? Who was responsible for his trial and conviction? Who passed the death sentence? If we go back and read the Gospel accounts, it's clearly the Jewish religious leaders who'd had Jesus arrested. The religious leaders who'd interrogated him. The religious leaders who found him guilty of blasphemy. The religious leaders who handed him over to Pilate and demanded a death penalty. In the words of Peter's speech, verse 23, it was you. That is the Jews there, represented by their leaders. You, with the help of wicked men who put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Wicked men had put Jesus to death, but this act of wickedness did not outwit Almighty God. In fact, it was all part and parcel of his great plan of salvation for the human race. Look at verse 23. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. God's set purpose and foreknowledge. The sovereign Lord of the universe was in complete control. He wasn't phased by wicked men. He wasn't flummoxed by Pilate's weakness. He was not defeated by Jesus' death. On the contrary, he planned them. He used human wickedness and weakness to his own ends, as he always does. You remember the story of Joseph and his brothers in Egypt? Brothers had Joseph sold into slavery. Had treated him unbelievably badly and he had a terrible time. But God had raised him up to that position of being Prime Minister in Egypt and providing food for all the nations around. And the brothers, because of hunger, had come to Egypt uh, in search of food. And Joseph recognises them They end up coming and living in Egypt. When Father Jacob dies, the brothers are suddenly afraid. What might Joseph do to us now? Will he get his revenge? Well, this is what Joseph said to them. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. I think of a church in Cambodia, the wickedness of Pol Pot and the way he treated not just Christians but many people who opposed to him. But people escaped from his clutches into the refugee camps of of Thailand where the church began to grow. People in those confined spaces testifying to the way God had cared for them and provided for them, sharing that message with others and the Cambodian church took off in those refugee camps. God used the wickedness of one man and his regime to bring out his own good purposes. And if God can use overt human wickedness, then there is, there's nothing that will stand in the way of him fulfilling his plan. Sickness can't do that. Bureaucracy can't do it. Incompetence can't do it. 
I think of some missionary friends who were in Argentina uh, back, I forget when it was, 1980s or even the late 70s. They had to come home before they'd planned because of the birth of a disabled child. But because when the child was born they realised they would have to go home, they worked very, very hard to train up young church leaders to stand on their own feet and to manage the church without them. They went home. Only a few months after they went home, the, the Falkland Islands were invaded. We went to war with Argentina and missionaries had to leave very rapidly. If that child had not been born, the church leaders in that particular area of Argentina would never have been trained. They may never have stood on their own feet. God uses every circumstance to his own good end. He can use our sickness, our failures, even our deliberate wrong. He's not knocked off track by human frailties or wickedness. His purposes will never fail. And secondly, death has been swallowed up in victory. Quotation from uh, 1 Corinthians 15. The clearest demonstration that human wickedness did not outflank God is seen in the resurrection itself. Verse 24. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. I mean, how could it? Jesus was the author of life. All of creation came into being through him. The New Testament's very clear. This is a bodily resurrection. In the quotation from Psalm 16, the psalmist writes, My body also will live in hope. And then in verse 27, this is the quotation from Psalm 16, Nor will you let your Holy One see decay. It was a physical Jesus who was raised from the grave. The first disciples encountered, encountered a bodily Jesus. John speaks of, of one, of our, one that our hands has touched in his first letter. Our hands touched him. Thomas needed to put his hand into the side of Jesus to be convinced that Jesus was really there. This was no apparition. Jesus was truly alive. It was a physical, bodily resurrection. And the New Testament writers go on to say that our resurrection will be a physical, bodily resurrection as well. His resurrection was, if you like, a down payment of a future resurrection for all who are in relationship with him. Christians have often spoken in vague terms about what happens after death. Heaven, if we get there, is seen as some kind of ethereal, out-of-body existence. You know the picture, the you know, angels sitting on fluffy white clouds, playing harps. Well, the New Testament vision is altogether different. It speaks of a new heaven and a new earth. One which will be as different from this world as the raised physical Jesus was from his pre-crucifixion body. God's going to do for the whole cosmos what he did for Jesus. In his little book, The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis describes the new creation as somehow more solid, more weighty, Everything's the same, but infinitely better. More solid, more real, more glorious. 
And in the last battle, Lewis also describes um, this in, in different ways and he talks about even the leaves on the trees being so solid and real that they are sharp. They have that kind of concreteness about them. And then John writes in Revelation 21, there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Truly a place where everything sad is going to become untrue. And it's with this hope that Christians can face difficulties and pain. Suffering is a mark of this messed up world but it will be banished in the new creation. Everything will be perfect, always new, always glorious, lasting for eternity. And with such an end in view, Paul's able to write in Romans 8 uh, these words. He says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. Our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed. Three weeks ago, Catherine and I stood in a bookshop, a Christian bookshop in Romania. It was the very same building where Richard Wurmbrandt was once held captive, where he suffered torture and physical isolation because of his Christian faith. Fernbrent had a clear hope of resurrection and a daily experience of the living God being with him, sustaining him and keeping him from denying his faith. The Assyrian pastor I mentioned at the beginning facing torture and execution can hold on to that same hope. Hope for vindication, hope for resurrection, hope for a life without sorrow or pain or death. In one of his books on the resurrection, Tom Wright explains death is the last weapon of the tyrant. The point of the resurrection is that death has been defeated. Resurrection is not the re-description of death, it is its overthrow. And with that, the overthrow of those whose power depends on it. And that brings me nicely to my third point, which is a warning. The one they crucified is now king and judge. The Jewish religious leaders, the Roman soldiers, Pilate himself, they all thought Jesus was powerless, that he was unwilling and unable to defend himself. They mocked him. They dressed him in a purple robe and crown of thorns, crying, Hail, King of the Jews! Striking him in the face. But later Jesus said to Pilate, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. And now the one that they mocked as king truly is king. See verse 32 and following. God has raised this Jesus to life and we're all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he's received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven and yet he said the Lord said to my Lord sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore 
Let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Peter's here quoting from another of David's Psalms, Psalm 110, where David shows that God will make David's Lord the king. And Peter makes it quite clear that this is a looking forward to Jesus and to the resurrection of Jesus and his subsequent ascension into heaven. God has made Jesus king. He is both Lord and Christ. He is the victor. And those who do not align themselves with him will suffer. He is the judge. Those who continue to to resist him will find themselves on the wrong side of his justice. And you see how quick the crowd were to realise just what was at stake. Verse 37, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? See, this crowd gathered in Jerusalem for Pentecost were all Jews or converts to Judaism. They knew Israel's history. They knew that God would not continue to tolerate their opposition. They knew that failure to honour God's king was a treasonable offence. And they knew that they needed to get right with this king as soon as they could because their eternal destiny was at stake. And the scenario is no different this morning. If you live in God's world while remaining opposed or just indifferent to his word and his ways, if we ignore God and refuse to let Jesus be king in our lives, then a day of judgment will follow. A day that doesn't bear thinking about. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ today, you're in grave danger. If you continue that way until you die or until Jesus returns, you face the unimaginable horror of an eternity separated from God, deprived of everything good that comes from the hands of God. An eternity without love, an eternity without beauty, an eternity without joy, an eternity without hope. I could paint the picture differently. I could use some of the terms the Bible uses. But do I need to? Imagining a a world, even like the one in which we live today, all the pain, the suffering, the hatred, the death, without anything to give you hope. Without anything good. Is that really what you want? The crowd in Jerusalem clearly thought they needed to do something about it. What must we do, they cry. And the answer is found in Peter's promise and my fourth point, that forgiveness and new life are possible. Verse 38, Peter replied, Repent and be baptised every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Forgiveness and new life, they're possible. They require our repentance and baptism. Repentance is a much misunderstood word. It doesn't just mean saying sorry. Yes, it includes saying sorry, 
but it's much more than that. It literally means a change of mind or a change of direction. It was late May 1999, I was being driven from a conference on the outskirts of Washington DC to the place where I was going to be accommodated for the duration of the conference. Pete was driving and like most men he knew where he was going. At least he thought he did. His wife wasn't so sure and uh, the atmosphere in the car was a little frosty. We drove for rather a long time. It should have taken us about 15 minutes to get there and after an hour we were still driving, miles and miles. Eventually, Pete repented. He admitted that he didn't know where he was going. He apologised to his wife. He turned the car around and we set off in the way that she wanted to go. That was repentance. Admitting that he was wrong. Acknowledging, or for us, it's admitting that we are wrong. Acknowledging that we've not lived up to our own standards, let alone to God's, and that we're headed in the wrong direction. And then, it means to turn around, to change direction, to stop going our own way and to start going God's way. Living life with him in friendship and submission. You can't do just the first, the acknowledging that you're wrong. It means a turning around and going a different way. It seems that Mahatma Gandhi was able to do the first but not the second. In his autobiography he wrote in the preface, I hope to acquaint the reader fully with all my faults and errors. Measuring myself by the standard of truth, I must exclaim, where is there a wretch so miserable and loathsome as I? I have forsaken my maker, so faithless have I been. What an admission, what humility. And we do well to emulate his honesty and his humility, but not, I suggest, his apparent reluctance to go the next step and to submit to Jesus as king or to accept the free offer of forgiveness from his hands. He apparently did not want another telling him how he should live. But true repentance involves accepting that God's way is best and that we need him and then to walk willingly in his ways. Repent and be baptised. Baptism's nothing magical. It's a badge of identity. It's a way of saying we want to belong to Jesus. It's an acceptance that in his death and resurrection their forgiveness of sins is possible. It's an admission that I cannot save myself and that I want to be identified with Jesus who alone can save me and give me this new life. But forgiveness of sins is not all we get. To live the new life God wants me to live, I need power to change. Power to resist temptation, power to love others selflessly. And that's exactly what the Holy Spirit will bring. We thought earlier about the transformation of the disciples from fear to fearlessness. That was clear evidence of the power of God's Spirit at work. In verse 38, again, Repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who brings us into that personal relationship with God for which we're made. 
It's he who enables us to know God, to hear his words, to obey his commands. He's the one who brings union with Jesus in such a way that we can then say with the psalmist, I saw the Lord always before me. Because he's at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope because you will not abandon me to the grave nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You've made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. The Holy Spirit brings us into that personal relationship with God for which we were made. He enables us to know God, to hear his word, to obey his commands. Tom Wright has got this wonderful line, Easter was when hope in person surprised the whole world by coming forward from the future into the present. Easter was when hope in person surprised the whole world by coming forward from the future into the present. The risen Christ has broken into our world. He's brought forgiveness and new life and by the gift of the Holy Spirit he enables us to have a foretaste of that resurrection life, the new heaven and the new earth. And even when our lives are blighted with pain, with suffering, with illness, with joblessness, with persecution, we can still truly experience his joy in our lives. That's what kept Richard Vermbrandt going. That's what keeps my friend Dave going. That's what kept my sister Fiona rejoicing, even to the grave. The resurrection hope. A hope for the future that invades the present. Let me urge you this morning to take hold of it. Peter warned his first hearers, verse 40, with many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. The message of the resurrection is that there is a new world. Jesus offers us a lifeline by which we're rescued from our present existence, from this corrupt generation, as Peter calls it. For the time being, we still live in this world, but its hold on us is broken. As we thought earlier, death has died. We become part of the kingdom of God, living under his rule, enjoying fellowship with him. We're forgiven our past, given power to live for him in the, fu- in the present, and filled with hope for the future. So there's both a warning and a promise. The warning is that we ignore Jesus at our peril. If you're not yet a believer in Jesus this morning, I cannot urge you strongly enough to stop ignoring him, to stop resisting him. It's as futile as it is dangerous. You cannot win. But if you will come to him, he promises forgiveness and the Holy Spirit. If you'll put your hand in his today, he'll give you that glorious resurrection hope. This life may continue to bring suffering and grief, but if you become a follower of Jesus, you will receive resurrection power, power to live for him, power to enjoy him in the midst of trials. Christian life's not always easy. Sometimes it's more difficult than not being a Christian. But with Jesus, it's not only possible, it's joyful. 
So if you found yourself drawn to Jesus this morning, if you recognise your own rebellion against God and want to come to Jesus for forgiveness, you might like to pray with me a prayer. I'm going to, first of all, I'm going to read it to you so you know what you're going to pray. This isn't the prayer, I'm just going to tell you what it will say. Heavenly Father, I've rebelled against you. I've sinned in my thoughts, my words and my actions, sometimes unconsciously, sometimes deliberately. I'm sorry for the way I've lived and ask you to forgive me. Thank you that Jesus died on the cross so that I could be forgiven. Thank you that I can now see clearly who Jesus is and why he came. Please send your Holy Spirit to help me to follow him, whatever the cost, and fill me with resurrection hope and joy in your presence. So if you'd like to pray that with me, then please uh, close your eyes, whatever makes you feel comfortable, and then quietly in your own hearts, repeat these words as I pray them. Heavenly Father, I have rebelled against you. I have sinned in my thoughts, my words and my actions, sometimes unconsciously, sometimes deliberately. I'm sorry for the way I've lived and ask you to forgive me. Thank you that Jesus died on the cross so that I could be forgiven. Thank you that I can now see clearly who Jesus is and why he came. Please send your Holy Spirit to help me follow him, whatever the cost, and fill me with resurrection hope and joy in your presence. Amen. And now for all of us who do already trust Christ, we pray, Heavenly Father, that you would truly fill us afresh with this resurrection hope and joy in your presence, that we might face the suffering and difficulties that lie ahead of us, that we might face opposition and persecution from friends or family, from work colleagues, from government. Give us courage as those early disciples to stand up and to be counted, to honour you, to acknowledge you, to proclaim you, even when it's costly. May we go out from this place filled with hope for the future, knowing that Jesus is risen, that he's alive and that he's with us and that death will not be the end, that there is a new heaven and a new earth to which we can all look forward. So grant us that that joy as we live for you in the days ahead. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.